Well, good morning. We continue in the summer series, God Revealed, Exodus chapter 20, verses uh, 4 through 7 this morning. Uh, one of the most me- moving scenes this week, I believe, was um, 89 South Koreans meeting their relatives from the north. So, relatives have lived uh, separated for over 65 years, and this was the first time that these 89 South Koreans were seeing face-to-face their North Korean relatives. What they had was some pictures, some distant memories, uh, over 65 years of separation. They had 11 hours, 11 sweet short hours together over three days. 55, sorry, 56,000 South Koreans applied for permission to meet their relatives. That speaks to the longing for reunion, right? Uh, only 89 were given the privilege. They made comments like this, oh, it was like heaven. <laughs> I was stunned with disbelief. I could not believe it was happening. One woman who had been chosen to meet her brother, even as she went to the reunion, she wasn't sure whether she would actually meet her brother. You know, she had repressed her memories, 65 long years of separation. But when she saw her brother approaching her, she saw her father's face in his face. And then she knew it was her brother. Precious moments. You know, God, he reveals himself to us. He shows his face. What does he long for? What does he want us to remember? We're in the book of Exodus, and and, and God has revealed himself as Yahweh. That's the Hebrew name for God. That's the name that God has given to himself, Yahweh. What does that mean? You know, he revealed himself through the parting of the Red Sea. He revealed himself to Israel during the wilderness journey. Now the people of Israel have gathered around Mount Sinai, and the mountain is trembling. There's thunder. There's lightning. A cloud descends on the mountain. There's this trumpet blast. And when the trumpet blast reaches its most intense level, Yahweh speaks. He speaks. He shows his face. He speaks forth ten words what we know as the Ten Commandments. The first four, they reveal to the people how they are to love Yahweh, how they should worship him. The last six reveal how people should love one another. God sets the framework for life. He he sets the framework for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. What was the first word? The first word was, you shall have no other gods before me. That's in Exodus 20, verse 3. It's a very simple, straightforward word, a word that anyone could understand. It's a personal word. The you there is singular, so each Hebrew person that is there at the base of the mountain hearing God speak is to understand, okay, it's for me. I am to listen. I'm to obey. I'm to follow in the way of Yahweh. The relationship is to be personal. And then after the first word is given, three more words are given to show the people how they should worship Yahweh, what that should look like. So let's go to the second word, Exodus chapter 20, verse 4. If you picked up a Bible uh, here in the church, in the seat back, it's page 61. Exodus 20, verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image 
or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments." What's being forbidden by the second word? Well, very obviously, idolatry is being condemned. And what is idolatry? Idolatry is ascribing worth. It's giving our hearts to. It's clinging to. It's trusting in someone other than Yahweh, the true God. We can give our hearts to gods and goddesses. Sometimes we idolize people or things. The second word condemns every form of idolatry. There there are three commands contained in the second word. Um, You shall not make, you shall not bow down, and you shall not serve. So the first is, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. Don't try to shape or form God Almighty, Yahweh, into an image. Why would God say... You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Why would he speak in that way? Well, remember, the people of Israel, they came out of Egypt. And the Egyptians believed that the whole universe was animated by spiritual power. And so when you look at their gods and goddesses, they are associated with some aspect of creation. They worshipped images that represented gods and goddesses, but all of these images came from the created world. Why not continue the practice? Well, because Yahweh is the creator. He's sovereign over. He's beyond his creation. He's distinct from, he's awesome, he's great, he's transcendent, and he freely reveals himself. You can't put God into a physical form. All images of Yahweh, they will always misrepresent him. They'll always limit his majesty, limit his magnitude. They're always less than he is. Now, perhaps we don't worship a physical image, but are there ways that we limit our understanding of God? Sometimes it's easier to talk about a God of love than a God of justice, for example. Sometimes it's easier to talk about the grace of God than the wrath of God. Sometimes it's easier to say, well, Jesus will save us than to say, hey, to follow Jesus, we actually need to die to ourselves. Every time that we're kind of selective in our reading of Scripture, we're making God less than he is, and we then live in a way under the calling that he actually has for us. Secondly, we can't control God. The human desire is to create an image of God that's kind of like us, (laughs) a God more on our level, a God that we can handle, a God as we would like him to be. God can't be contained by us. He cannot be controlled by us. He can't be manipulated by us. And then thirdly, God is personal. He's living. He's active. He thinks. He chooses. He feels. He loves. He cares. He dwells among his people. He longs for us to know him. He wants to have a face-to-face relationship with him. And there's no way that any picture, you know, on the dresser or an image on a shelf could ever represent a God like that. He wants us to know him. 
the North and South Koreans, they were you know, given permission to be together for 11 hours. 11 precious, wonderful hours. That's what God wants for us now and forever. Face-to-face, intimate relationship. He doesn't want us to be apart. So idolatry is always a lie. It always makes Yahweh exactly what he is not. It makes him impersonal. It makes him passive, cold, dead, visible, finite, contained. The principle here in the second word is worship Yahweh without limits. Don't try to contain him. Worship him without limits. Don't contain him. And that word is a liberating word. So the first imperative is don't make an image. The second of the three is you shall not bow down to them. Don't recognize the presence of a spiritual being or power in an image. You see, in the ancient world, these images, they were carved, they were crafted, they were chiseled, and then usually an incantation or a a magical formula was pronounced over the image, and it was understood that the image would then contain the power of that goddess. It was a conduit, conduit for the power of the god or goddess. And Yahweh is saying, don't attach yourself to that spiritual reality. The third command uh, here within the second word is tied to the second. You shall not serve. Don't dedicate yourself to the service of that being. If you look at idolatry in the ancient world, or even practices to this day, people that practice idolatry make huge sacrifices to those idols. They spend all kinds of money. They make personal sacrifices. Some people even sacrifice their own children. People cut themselves, pierce themselves, do all kinds of things to appease those gods. And Yahweh is saying out of love to his people, please do not do that. I'm not asking for that. Do not attach yourself to those evil spiritual powers that are there to steal, to kill, and destroy. Now, an obvious question arises. If idolatry was so enslaving, why did people practice it? Why were they drawn to it? Why is idolatry practiced around the world today, even here in North America? Why? Well, first, idolatry was a way to get the gods to work for you. In the ancient world, it was understood that gods couldn't feed themselves. And so one advantage that humans had over gods was that they could feed them. And the understanding was that if you fed a god, then the god had to serve you. You've probably seen this in different places in the world where there are idols. There's food placed before the idol. There's a reason for it. So if you fed the god regularly in Palestine, then your crops, you know, would be abundant. The sheep would multiply. Do we carry this kind of thinking into our Christian practice at times? Perhaps not the exact practice, but the way of thinking. Philip Ryken, commenting on this verse, uh, describes our tendencies in this way. Sometimes we think this way. If I do this, then God will do that. If I touch the minister, then I will be healed. If I fulfill my vow, then God will make me rich. If I say the right prayer every day, I will have the key to unlock God's blessing. If I follow the right parenting method, then my kids will grow up to be godly. As long as we approach God the right way, we will get what we want. And then he concludes, God wants us to trust him and obey him, not use him. 
God wants us to trust him, to obey him, know him, not use him. So, idolatry was a way to get the gods to work for the people of that time. Secondly, it was easy. It was normal. Everyone did it. And so, all that was needed was to worship frequently, generously, and then how you lived your life after that didn't matter. In the morning, make your sacrifice to the god or goddess, and then go live your life. Duty done. Again, is that ever imitated in Christian practice? Sometimes... Whether we say it or not, we sometimes act as if all we need to do is go to the worship service, give our offering, and then go live life. Duty done. Got that done. Let's go live life. Then third, and this is tied to the second, it was believed that no one God could do it all. So you needed to have a whole bunch of gods to manage all of life. And in Israel, what was understood was that, okay, we need to have a national god, Yahweh. He got us out of Egypt. He fights battles for us. But we also need family gods. We need personal gods, gods that will ensure our health, gods that will make the fields fertile. So an Israelite would say, okay, I'm going to worship Yahweh, but I'll also worship Baal and Asherah in order to secure my health in order to make, you know, the sheep multiply. We might say something similar. We wouldn't say the same thing. But sometimes we live as if Jesus is good in order to secure forgiveness of sin. Jesus gives us eternal life. But then in daily life, you know, life, it operates by another set of rules. And so we really need to serve the powers of money or sex or some other God. And this leads to the fourth point. One of the reasons that idolatry was attractive was because it was erotic. If you read the scriptures, you'll notice that the scriptures speak of cult prostitutes. What is that about? Well, worship in Palestine was erotic. Worship in Egypt was erotic. It was understood that an action in one location would have an impact on another dimension. So what they thought they needed to do was play the roles of Baal and Asherah, these gods of fertility, play their roles at the temple, have sexual relations. This would stimulate the gods to do something in the heavens and as a sequence, then the crops you know, would be abundant and the sheep would multiply. That was their understanding. Of course, that has a huge impact on society. And so not only does the, the worship sex happen in the temple, but the society as a whole becomes promiscuous. And if you look at Egypt, for example, they worshipped gods and goddesses that were represented by animals, and that results in bestiality. You see, we always we become what we worship. In our North American society, if we idolize sex, then it fills our conversation. Conversation, It fills our imagination. It, it becomes core to our identity. Have you heard this message preached? That our sexuality is actually core to who we are. It sits at the center of who we are, of our value system. It guides our decision-making. It spills out into behavior, and it cannot be repressed in any way. So, Dr. Christopher Ewan, when he was here earlier this year, he said what people have said to him. You can't be whole if you're not sexually active. That kind of statement comes from a society that believes that sex is at the center of who we are, sex being idolized. And that's why we need to return to the scriptures and understand 
what God has created us or who God has created us to be. Do we have idols today? Well, of course we do. It's really easy to idolize ourselves, to put ourselves at the center. But we can idolize almost anything, a profession, reputation, security, pleasure, comfort, physical fitness, even a church ministry. Even preaching can be idolized. Our hearts can be given to anything. That's why John Kelvin wrote, From this we may gather that man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. Man's mind, full as it is of pride and boldness, dares to imagine a God according to its own capacity. If we look at our idols, we'll see where our passions lie, where our desires lie, where our devotion rests, and our practice will reflect that idolatry. And idolatry always makes Yahweh much less than he is, makes us much less than we were created to be. What is the only image of God permitted on the face of the earth? The only one. The only image of God permitted on the face of the earth. The human being, male and female. We were created in the image of God. We thinking, loving, feeling, choosing, relating human beings. We were created to reflect Yahweh's glory, show his face. But you might say, but the image of God in us, it's been defaced. We are fallen. We're confused. We're destructive. We are so much less than we should be. We're enslaved. We're irrational. How could that image of God in us ever be restored? How could it be that you or I would ever reflect Yahweh's face? Well, Jesus came, and he represented Yahweh's image perfectly. Look at John 1.18. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He, Jesus, has made him known. Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So people, when they looked at Jesus, he was here on earth, and when people looked at him, they saw Yahweh's face. As he cared for children, as he loved men and women, as he taught the truth with grace, they saw the Father's glory. And then... The supreme example of the Father's unconditional love for us, it was demonstrated at the cross when Jesus, who didn't need to die for his own sin, but died for ours, paid the price that we could never pay, the perfect sacrifice, so that we, sinners, might be reconciled with God, so that we might be forgiven, so that the Father might send the Holy Spirit to abide in us and transform us into the likeness of Jesus. The image of God in us restored. That's the gospel. So, don't tailor Yahweh to your image. Be transformed into his. Let's not make God into our image. Let's be transformed into the image of Jesus. Idolatry always limits who Yahweh is. But when we worship Yahweh without limits, we're transformed into the image of Jesus. 
So the principle of the second word is worship Yahweh without limits. And that principle, it's followed by a reason, a reason for the principle, a warning, and then a promise. Here's the reason. Verse 5, Exodus 20, verse 5. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. What does that mean for God to be jealous? That sounds kind of negative, right? When we think of jealousy, we think of envy. And so, you know, I desire something that you have. I'm jealous of you. I want something that doesn't belong to me, that belongs to you. Is that what God is talking about? No. God is talking about his burning passion for those he loves. His love is exclusive. It's intense. He wants to protect those he loves. Israel, his treasured possession. He desires that his face, his image, be reflected through Israel. He's jealous for his glory. Maybe we could compare it to the passion, the love that those North and South Korean relatives felt for one another. You know, they clung to one another. They wanted to stay together. They wanted to be bonded together, protect one another. They only had 11 hours together, but they wanted it to last for the, certainly for the rest of this life. And Yahweh loves us with that kind of love, with that kind of passion. We are his children, and he doesn't want anything to separate us. He wants us to have this face-to-face relationship now and forever. So he gives the second word out of love. He's jealous for our face. He's jealous for our face. He wants us to experience his presence. He wants us to know him. He wants us to live for our created purpose because he knows that that's where life is. In his jealousy, it generates a warning and a promise. Verse 5 again. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. So there you have one of the sobering consequences of sin. Others are impacted. Our disobedience will always have an impact on others. But this sobering reality, it's tempered by God's goodness. The warning is qualified in at least four ways. First, The warning applies to those who hate God. And when God uses this language of love and hate, he's not just talking about emotional reactions, emotional responses. He's talking about relationship. Those that hate God are those that are disloyal to him, those that disregard him, those that spurn his love. Those who hold him in contempt. Second, notice that the suffering only goes to the third and fourth generation. And I think this is important. In the ancient Near East, the families, they were patriarchal. And so you would have a father with his children, grandchildren, great-children, three, four generations living in the same household. And so quite obviously, the sin of the father would have an impact. The idolatry of the father would have an impact on three, four generations. Third... Notice that the warning should be compared with the promise. Look at the contrast. God punishes the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation, but shows steadfast love to thousands of those who love him. 
An alternative reading is to the thousandth generation. So that, again, reveals the Father's heart. God earnestly desires to bless thousands of generations with his steadfast, unchanging love. And then fourth, the cycle of sin can always be broken through repentance. We do not need to continue in the sins of our forefathers. The good news is that we can choose. Deuteronomy 24, 16. Fathers shall not put, be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. Here's a story from the Old Testament that illustrates this. Uh, the story of Josiah. His grandfather, King Manasseh, was one of the most evil rulers ever. He filled Judah with idolatry. He built altars to the gods of the heavens. He burned his own children as offerings. He engaged in sorcery. He consulted mediums. The scriptures say in 2 Chronicles 33 that he, did, uh, he led Judah to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. He completely violated the second word. Completely. And while he lived, God continued to speak to him through his prophets. He didn't listen. The people didn't pay attention. Manasseh died. His son Amon became king. Amon followed in the ways of his father. He, again, practiced idolatry. Israel was becoming, or Judah, was becoming more and more corrupt. So his servants conspired against him and killed him. And his son, Josiah, became king at eight years of age. Eighteen years later, Josiah is now around 26, and Josiah orders his secretary, Shaphan, to organize a cleansing of the temple. Remember, Jerusalem, the temple, Judah, filled with idols. So Shaphan, together with the priests and some servants, they're cleaning the temple, and what do they find? They find the book of the law. They find what we're reading today they find the first five books of the Bible. As they, so uh, they find that. Shaphan, he, he, he takes it to King Josiah, and King Josiah says, well, could you read it to me? And as it's being read to him, he begins to weep. He realizes that his generation has not honored Yahweh. He realizes that previous generations have practiced idolatry, He tears his clothes. He repents. And how does Yahweh respond? 2 Kings 22, verse 19. Because your heart was penitent and you humbled yourself before the Lord, when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, and you have torn your clothes and wept before me, I also have heard you, declares the Lord. So even though Judah has been idolatrous for generations has completely spurned, despised the love of God, when Josiah turns his heart, when he repents, Yahweh immediately responds with love and grace. He blesses Josiah. He blesses the nation of Judah. No image could ever come close to representing a God of such immense grace and love. So remember, Yahweh loves you passionately. Don't spurn him. Don't despise him. Yahweh is jealous for your love, jealous for his glory. And that jealousy, it includes his name. And this is important. 
Thus the third word. Exodus chapter 20, verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Another translation of that verse would be, do not employ the name of Yahweh your God to empty purpose. Names matter, don't they? When parents are going to have a child, they'll spend hours and hours talking about the name to be given. This isn't uncommon. Uh, Parents will read lists of names, trying to decide which name should be given. The name to be given, it will be joined with the surname, and parents will ask, does that sound right? Does that sound good? Is there a bit of a rhythm to that? What's the meaning of the name? What will it sound like in another language? So if you have come from another country in the naming of your child, you may have thought of what the name will sound like in English, but also in another language. When we named our children, we thought about their names in Portuguese and English. Names are important. You think of nicknames. What kind of nicknames will be given should we name our child with this name? Names matter. And even after the baby is born, sometimes the parents are there at the maternity ward and they're still having conversation about the name to be given because names matter. And in the ancient Near East, names were even more important. In Israel, a name, well, it communicated the essence of that person, their character, their values, their identity. So parents took time to name their children. Now, Something is different about God's name. The people of Israel don't name him. Yahweh names himself. And the revelation of his name is a gift. It's a gift to be cherished. So, when the people of Israel are there before the mountain, in verse 2, God speaks forth his name. He says, I am Yahweh, your God. And when he says, when he utters that name, speaks it forth, Yahweh, he's saying, I am who I am. I always was, I am, and I always will be. I'm your creator. I'm the sovereign Lord. I'm over all things, over your history. You can trust me. My word is always my word. My truth is always my truth. I am Yahweh, the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt. I am your savior. I love you. I want relationship with you. Listen to my voice. Honor my name. Durham, commenting on this verse, says, to treat Yahweh's name with disrespect is to treat his gift lightly, to underestimate his power, to scorn his presence, and to misrepresent to the family of humankind his very nature as the one who always is. God, the creator, is worship of all praise, of all honor, of all glory. He is the one and only. So maximize Yahweh's majesty. Don't minimize it. Maximize his majesty. Don't minimize it. Are there ways that we dishonor the name of God? Are there ways that we take his name in vain? And when we we think of this, we often think of swearing, right? The practice of using the name of God is an exclamation point. You really want to emphasize something and you put the name of God at the end. Boom. 
That's a way to dishonor the name of God. The basic meaning here in this verse is to use the name of God when making an oath. And so you make your statement credible because you use God's name. But if you use his name to make a false affirmation, you are using his name in vain. And of course, there are other examples. Sometimes we're just thoughtless. We're disrespectful in the way we use God's name. We'll throw out an expression like, well, Lord willing, we will do. And we don't even think about the will of the Lord. Or, oh my God. We just throw it out there as an expression. It's thoughtless. Sometimes politicians will use God's name in order to bless a military effort. Of course, this has been done throughout history. If you really want the heart of the people, put God's name on it. Sometimes it's used to endorse a political action. In the Old Testament, sometimes the name of the Lord was used to authenticate a a false prophecy. In our conversations, sometimes I'm afraid we say things like this without really realizing the impact of it. You know, the Spirit of God told me to do this. And you... It's not that it's wrong to say that we sense God guiding us, but when we use the name of God to get people to agree to us, to manipulate a conversation, to put a special code of blessing on it, I believe we use the name of the Lord in vain. Here's a humorous example of that. When I was in university, uh, my friend, a a young woman, came up to him and said, hey, the Lord told me that you're supposed to marry me. So he married her. No, he did. That, that obviously is a misuse of, of God's name. Sometimes in worship, you know, whether we're alone or at church, we can be rather flippant, casual in our worship. Our, our lips are saying things, but our heart isn't there. In one church, this didn't happen at Willingdon, may it never happen here, but in one church in another country, uh, the Lord's Supper was being celebrated, and so the pastor wanted to make people feel at ease. And he said, just consider the Lord's Supper to be a mid-service snack. What? Did I hear that correctly? So Jesus comes and he gives his life, dies for us, and in, you know, commands that we remember his death and resurrection, and a pastor calls it a snack? As if it's kind of an interruption in the service? That's the misuse of the Lord's name. It's dishonoring him. With, with Yahweh, heart matters. And our words are actions that reflect what's in our hearts. As I've thought about this text that we've studied today, you know, it teaches us to worship Yahweh without limits. It it teaches us that Yahweh loves us passionately and we are not to despise that love. It teaches us that we are to be transformed into his image, not, we're not to make him into our image. We're to maximize the name of Yahweh. I read a story uh, this week, uh, a friend from Burundi wrote it, and I think it illustrates what we've been talking about here. Uh, a lady in Burundi, I'll call her Peggy, it's not her real name, but she was living on the streets, she was begging. Uh, over half the population in Burundi lives under the poverty line, it's a hungry nation. She survived by begging, begging for money, scrounging for food, uh, barely surviving. Hopeless, 
And then Peggy was invited to participate in a discipleship group. And she thought, well, should I go? Will I even be accepted? I'm a beggar. Will people judge me for who I am? But then she thought, well, I have nothing to lose. So she went. And there in that discipleship group, she heard this beautiful teaching about a God who loved her. She discovered that Jesus was truly the lover of her soul. She gave her heart to Jesus and she was filled with hope. Sometime later, a generous donor gave some money to that group and each member in the group received a little bit of money. Peggy as well received some money and with that money, she bought a bag of charcoal. So it wasn't a lot of money, but enough to buy a bag of charcoal. She, you know, broke up that charcoal, divided it up, and took those pieces of charcoal and sold them on the street. As she was being discipled, she was realizing, okay, that not only was God different than she had imagined him to be, but that she too was a person with dignity. And that God could do things in her life, that she could actually, you know, be blessed by God in what she did. So she sold those pieces of charcoal on the street, gained some money. With that money, she bought some chickens. She bought a goat. Remember, God was changing her heart. She was a beggar, and now she was a daughter of her Father in heaven. And she realized that she could be generous, so she gave chickens away. She was begging, now she's giving. Those that she had begged from now began to come to her and say, what's the reason for your hope? She shared the message of Jesus. If you go to Burundi today, Peggy spends time at the local hospital. In the local hospital, it's a dirty, desperate place, but she cares for bedridden strangers, people she doesn't know. She washes their soiled clothes. Sometimes she spends the night beside them if they're alone. Her life has been transformed by the truth of who God is and the love of God for her. That's a life transformed by Yahweh. That's the life of a person being transformed into the image of Yahweh. No longer begging, but giving. The image of Jesus restored in her. She making the name of Jesus famous in Burundi. Yahweh being worshipped without limits. And that's happening because she bowed down to Jesus, the name above every name. Philippians chapter 2, verse 9. God has rightly... God has highly exalted him, Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. What that means is Jesus Christ is Yahweh, to the glory of God the Father, If we're followers of Jesus, we look forward to that day. We yearn for that day. When we will meet Jesus face to face and every knee will bow. Hallelujah. We live with hope, as Peggy does. But if you haven't bowed your knee to Jesus on that day, it will be a day of judgment. A day of judgment to a life separated from Jesus. And so we're given the opportunity to come to Jesus now, much better to bow now, to choose Jesus today. We don't have to worship, we get to. 
We don't try to manipulate Jesus for our purposes. We bow down. We die to ourselves. We die to our images. We die to our idols. And when we do that, when we reach out to Jesus for love, for forgiveness, for life, he sends his spirit to live in us so that we might be filled with life, with joy, with hope, forgiven so that we might live the life that God has created us to live, so that we might reflect the face of Yahweh to a watching world, our lives showing the love and glory of God. May we choose to bow now. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's stand for prayer. I'm going to pray two prayers, one prayer for all of us that are following Jesus in response to this word of the Lord, and then a prayer for those of us who may be praying to Jesus for the first time, and maybe we've been on a journey and we're ready today to, to bow down to him, to surrender our lives to him. We're, we're desperate and we know that we need new life, and so you want to Surrender your life to Jesus. I'll pray a prayer and you can pray with me. First, a prayer for all of us who are following Jesus. Lord, Yahweh, you are the one and only. We worship you. You are God Almighty, our Lord and Savior. So, so good, so gracious, so merciful, righteous and just, yet slow to anger. Thank you, Lord. Forgive us, Lord, for attaching our hearts to idols, for making you into our image, for making you less than you are, for trying to get you to serve us rather than being fully submitted to you. Forgive us for trying to contain you. Forgive us, Lord. We repent and we turn to you. Lord, We know that one day every knee will bow, but we choose to bow before you now. And we ask, Lord, that by your grace and mercy, by the presence and power of your Holy Spirit, that you would transform us into your likeness for your glory, that your name may be made famous in and through our lives, in our families, our city, our nation, wherever you might take us. Have your way, Lord, we pray. Be glorified, be honored. May your name be made famous. And now for those of you who may want to surrender to Jesus today, um, a prayer will be on the screen and you can pray together with me from your heart. God, I desire to know you personally. Please forgive me for leading my own life and rejecting your love. Thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross and paying the price for all my sin. I ask you to forgive my sins. Lord Jesus, lead me from this day forward. Fill me with your spirit. Set me free. Make me into the kind of person you created me to be. Transform me into your likeness. Thank you, God, for adopting me into your family and and gifting me with eternal life. In Jesus' name.
Amen. Amen. If you prayed that prayer for the first time, uh, please uh, visit people in the Welcome Center or come forward. Don't go home without talking to someone. Have a great weekend. God bless you.